and welcome back to Callum and David's Any Requests podcast. This is our Patreon requested podcast where uh, you, the listener, can donate £5 a month uh, at the Patreon link in the description below and request us to do a podcast on literally anything you want. And I think we say this every week, but uh, again, this is another example of it really is anything you want because this is yeah, it's a diversion again, isn't it? Another diversion. Um, really, really lovely. Really welcome that. Um, but also something we do have a little bit of um, experience in, uh, which we'll get to as we go along. But this week is all about vampires. Yes, yes. So this came uh, from my sister. So we're now on to our third month of uh, uh, Patreon requests yeah. of our regular patrons. And I think we're nearing six months into the podcast. So we, we yeah. have a bit of legwork to do to yeah. uh, 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 get back on track. But uh, rest assured, we are getting to all of them and we will get to all of them, uh, to all those uh, patrons out there listening. Um, but yes, yeah. So she has asked us uh, quite broadly to do our, our top 10 vampires in kind of any sort of facet of pop culture or media. So it doesn't have to be specifically film or TV. It can be kind of however we interpret vampires yeah. to be, which is quite fun. Um, it's really fun. Um, and I, I thought um, on my list, um, I wanted to start with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was quite a good one for us to talk about yeah. because it really is the origins of many, many vampire stories. Anything since really has been influenced hugely by that book. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and also on a personal note, you and I uh, adapted that book for um, an immersive show for a Brighton theatre company back in 2016, I believe, for Halloween. Yeah. Um, so we we do know that book very well. Yeah, but before that book, I didn't really know anything really about vampires. There were certain things that came up in, in pop culture, which, again, uh, I might mention some of them as we go through. But um, reading that book was a real kind of key into mm-hmm. vampire culture and vampire mythology. Yeah. Um, and... I have to say, reading the book was also hard work. Well, yeah, because, you know, you don't really need 20 pages of uh, <laughs> Victorian property law. I mean, which is I know, what you do I know more about... I said I know more about vampires from reading that book. I know much more about Victorian property law <laughs> than I do about vampires, <laughs> as would anyone who's read Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of detail. Yeah. Um, it was written in 1897, so... Yes, a lot of books and, you know, entertainment was slower. Yeah. Um, but even by those standards, you know, it was considered quite a lengthy book. But because of that detail, um, I think that's one of the reasons why, not not necessarily Victorian property law, um, yeah. but there are lots of, uh, lots of over kind of egged detail and world building that has really um, carried through mm-hmm. um, ever since. Um, briefly... Um, the novel uh, tells the story of Dracula's attempt to move from Transylvania to England so that he may find new blood and spread the undead curse and uh, of the battle between, of course, Dracula and a small group of people led by Professor Abram Van Helsing. Abraham. Yeah. I mean, what I... what I, I You know, you and I both struggled because it is a, a, a huge book and it is very dense and... By today's standards, there's a lot of extraneous information in there, but and trying to ad- adapt it for theatre, yeah, was 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 even you know you've only got a few hours. Yeah, having said that, that's actually one of the reasons why Bram Stoker wrote it was mm. because he was a massive lover of theatre. Yeah, um, 
He worked um, at the Lyceum yeah, yeah. Uh, in London uh, for a theatre manager, and um, and actually, Bram, his his adaptation of Dracula did run for yeah. uh, for many years there. Yeah, um, but yeah, what I what I do like about the book is that it was incredibly innovative at its time in terms of its its structure because it's written as a series of uh, uh, first person uh, letters, diary entries. Yeah. Um, uh, my personal favourite, which is the Demeter ship's log, which I, <laughs> I for me when I read it was the part of the book that stood out the most because it felt almost it felt very ahead of its time. The way that it's structured, structured, and the way that he builds tension in those ship's logs is almost like you know like a like a like a John Carpenter thriller from the eighties. Like like there's you can't like this wait to find out what happens next. Doom yeah. and you know suddenly one more. Uh, sailor or you know tra- trawler man on this ship has gone missing and then yeah. uh and the mystery around it and that that's why um i mean I, I there were some things that i thought were brilliant there were some things that i thought didn't necessarily work in the dracula adaptation um the mark <clears throat> gatiss one that came out at the beginning of this year yeah uh, over christmas um but what i did really appreciate was out of that three-parter he d- dedicated the whole second part to the Demeter. And people, like, when, when we were doing the adaptation, why does no adaptation of Dracula just gloss over this? Because it's so fascinating. And he did that, he did a whole hour just on the Demeter. So I, for that, I was really happy that that, that Gatiss saw what we saw in, in that part of the book in particular. Because I think that's the most kind of ominous and the most threatening that Dracula ever really feels because... They keep the mystery <clears throat> so yeah. much in that bit, and 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 that's one thing I think. Uh, 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 Connor Bourne, who's the artistic director of the uh, Brief Hiatus of the company that did, that commissioned us to write it. Um, one of his little, um, one of his kind of concepts was to, um, after we wrote it, was to actually remove the character of oh, Dracula, Dracula physically, so you never actually see him, but you're aware of his presence, and that was a real stroke of genius on Connor's part, I think, because it it made the idea of Dracula is so much more scary because you're imagining it in your own mind. And, yeah. and that's what I think the, the Demeter log does so well, is it it removes the personification of Dracula and it becomes this unseeing threat on this boat that's just picking off yeah. one by one the people on this boat until there's hardly anyone left. Which which gives him power. And yeah. although in Victorian literature you get a lot of, you know, Victorian thriller is a kind of genre in itself. Yeah. Um, and, and thriller and, and tension is something that Victorians did really, really well. Yeah. But I don't think you had a Victorian thriller where tension was built around an unseen force vanishing people from a confined space. Yeah. Yet, the idea of people being picked off from a confined space and no one knowing why is a, 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 a real trope of modern horror. Yeah. And I don't think that would possibly exist, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, without this Dem- Demeter's log. Yeah. Um, I think it's a real, real kind of more influential yeah. in terms of horror in general rather than just yeah. uh, just vampire um yeah. mythology yeah which, which i mean you know the the touch upon briefly about the fact that the i you know vampires do come from this sort of eastern european folklore um yeah um, romanian transylvanian yeah uh, idea of um, the undead, yeah. um, and also you know linked in with a lot of Christian mythology. I was going to say tied up a lot with religion, um, uh, and general Judeo-Christian crossovers. Yeah. Um, yeah, not so much like Bible or like uh, yeah. biblical text, but a lot of holy texts around that. Yeah, um, I, I talk about a few of my honorable mentions at the end, but one I'd just bring up now, um, 
which I was so tempted to put in my five, mm-hmm. but, but the film itself is is dreadful, so I couldn't. But it's a <laughs> it's an awful vampire film called Dracula Two Thousand, starring Gerard Butler, and it's one of those things <laughs> like, you know, I'm sure uh, uh, other people have experienced this, where like a great concept is really badly executed, and then you just kind of go, oh, well, no one else can do that now. Like yeah. you've taken this and ruined it. It's really annoying. And now no one else can do it. Like so, and because, so what it is at the beginning of the film, you get this whole history of, of the particular Gerard Butler's Dr- Dracula in Dracula Two Thousand, and the the concept is that he is Judas. Oh, great. And it makes all of those parallels, and that's the reason about the holy water and, and links in like the pieces of silver and the blood of Christ being yeah. drinking the blood, trying to get back to Christ all the time. And, and yeah. Uh, that's uh, really clever. Really, really clever. And and actually, that beginning uh, sort of uh, prologue to the film is actually really well shot. And it's really interesting. And remember when I first saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm massively up for this. And then the rest of the film is just awful, like straight to DVD quality, really bad acting, really bad writing. I was like, oh, for God's sake! Mm. But but the but that's one of the most kind of blatant, uh, obviously ties with religion that I've seen. And I do yeah. think that is important when you talk about vampires. Is pretty much any vampire thing. There's there's always links. I think in some way to to uh, religion or the fact that Dracula is almost an antichrist figure yeah um i think yeah no definitely and i, and I think also religious iconography obviously it's is mentioned a lot in yeah uh stoker's dracula with van helsing being quite a, a religious man and iconography of the cross and the idea of you know if if you trust in god then you'll mm-hmm, help defeat mm-hmm. the so there is that kind of linking but the the idea of actually making it kind of an antichrist or a, an anti uh religion thing is is yeah that's a, a stroke of genius really clever yeah. um but yeah within within stoker's dracula you know you do get um this idea of a traveling kind of force who is undead, has lived for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. um, who uh, who has to be invited in. Mm-hmm. So vampire trope-wise, has to be invited in, uh, can never kind of just break into a house or yeah. anything like that, um, and gets energy in life from drinking the blood um, of others. Also shape-shifting, which is yeah. a big part of the Demeter as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but, but garlic... Mm-hmm. And steaks and things like that. Yeah. Um, garlic, I think, is something that came, I don't know exactly when, but much so, later. So I'd really recommend, I don't know if it's going to still be on iPlayer, but but shortly after Gatiss' Dracula came out um, at the beginning of this year, or maybe till the end of last year, um, he did a documentary on Dracula on BBC4. Yeah. And it is fascinating because that documentary basically goes into when all these other tropes about vampires came in and and why they exist and some of them are brilliant there's this um talks about a french stage production of dracula um where they decided that instead of staking him through the heart he was going to be uh beheaded mm-hmm. on stage and the only way they could make the beheading work visually was to put dracula in a high collared cape <laughs> And so uh, that's why now, you know, all, everything, you know, yeah. like, like, you know, um, 
I mean, like the the Count in Sesame Street. You yeah, know, has all a, has these incarnations of Dracula or, 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 or vampires have these specifically capes with very high collars that come up. And that's um, totally and, from a and practical it was perspective. A practicality point of view of, of how you uh, deal with sight lines when you're blocking <laughs> a beheading a on stage. stage production as well. Yeah, like how influential a, a French yeah. stage production yeah. could be. Yeah. on everything yeah. we're about to talk about. Yeah. You know, um, I, is I incredible. Mean, obviously, a. a a lot of Dracula now comes from uh, Bela Lugosi and the old Universal monster movies that yeah. were in kind of early 20th century. And th- those Dracula films brought a lot of the tropes that we see today are actually in those, probably more than they even are in, in Stoker's book. Um, which but it is, is in- worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it is interesting as well. I and, and I think it's something we'll touch upon as we go through, but... I am intrigued as to why the world has been so fascinated for so long with the mm-hmm. idea of the vampire. And it is something that Mark Gatiss talks about a lot in that documentary. Um, but it's something we don't really know. We don't know the answer to because it's human mm-hmm. nature. Um, and But I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, any, anyone listening, what your thoughts are as well. So be sure to uh, get in touch. We'll let you know how at the end, I mean, as always. This this is something that, uh, a question that's come up a bit in, in when I've been doing some research around the choices I've made. Um, and and the consensus from a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers, tends to be it's it's because it's a double edged uh, uh, character in terms of between fear and desire, mm. because it's it's a force that you're afraid of, but also attracted to because you know playing on the idea of most people, the vast majority of people are afraid of death, are afraid of dying, can't yeah. deal with mortality, so being offered immortality but in order to do it you have to kind of submit yourself to this dark presence there's a there yeah Conf- it, a real it, emotion internal conflict an emotional there. conflict and and it plays upon your kind of yeah more darker kind of desires i guess um uh, so there's something seductive about the vampire i think yeah and, and also perhaps something sexual as well yeah i um, yeah depending I think, on the different adaptations yeah yeah absolutely Great. So yeah, that's Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I think um, you know, aside from Romanian folklore and uh, um, general European storytelling, the first kind of mainstream uh, introduction that most people got to uh, the vampire mythology mm-hmm. was uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, would totally agree. Um, Do we want to move on with another choice? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'll kick off with my first choice. Um, so my first choice is a uh, a 2014 independent film called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Uh, it's an Iranian film. I mentioned it very briefly when we were doing um, the uh, uh, podcast um, uh, and we talked about Spring. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, the Benson and Moorhead Benson podcast. Benson and Moorhead podcast. Yeah, I love um, that. And, I remember you and, talking about it. And uh, Spring reminded me a lot of a girl walks home alone at night and you might see why i talk a little bit about it so it's uh uh yeah an iranian film it was billed as the first iranian vampire western um <laughs> i'm not sure how many films are in contention for that um, well, i mean that swamped uh saturated yeah. market <laughs> um uh, uh directed by lily amapur who is just uh by all accounts just an awesome person she was uh a bassist in an iranian punk band and she was really instrumental in in kind of pushing uh, 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 gay rights in Iran. In fact, there's a, a sort of ancillary character um, uh, who is openly gay, which was actually a really big thing because it's yeah. illegal. Um, 
there and things like that. She was a professional skateboarder for a while. She was DJ and then she started making films. So she's like the coolest person ever, basically. <laughs> we should um, uh, try and meet her. Yeah. Get her on the podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, she she made uh, uh, this film, which is basically about um, this kind of uh, lonesome uh, female vampire who kind of go- goes around uh, looking for bad men. So that's right, why it reminded yeah. me a lot about Spring in terms of there's that ethical decision that the character makes in Spring oh, to course. try and only prey upon you know like when like that American guy and he's a real asshole and yeah. like she so she so there's and and there's there's a lovely scene um in a girl walks home alone at night where um it, it, it's an almost a, a kind of one take very wide shot actually a lot of it is very wide shot it's shot in uh, totally black and white wide screen and hmm. there's this one shot where um, she's with this guy uh, in in her bedroom, and they're playing music, and it's almost the entirety of of a song um, by a great band called White Lies, a kind of mid two thousands post punk band. Yeah. Um, and and she, music is a huge part of this film, uh, and there are quite a lot of sequences that are almost like a music video. They play out almost an entire wow. track of a song, and this one in particular, and you fit and and it kind of subverts what you think is going to happen twice because she's met this guy and he seems quite nice and he's um uh kind of they're moving closer in her bedroom and you think they're going to go into kiss because you know it's a vampire film you go oh they're going to go into kiss but then she's going to bite him yeah so it does that going to kiss then teases that she's going to bite him and then she decides to do neither because he's a, a good person a good backs person off. So right it, yeah it constantly subverts your expectations of what's going to happen um and and stylistically i just i i love it um uh i you'll probably learn uh a lot during this podcast about my kind of uh particular penchant for 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 for, for films of a certain type and i kind of unapologetically am very much a a style over substance person. I mean, <laughs> it, a film can be crap, but have amazing cinematography, and I'm probably going to love it. Like I'm right, very yeah. visual based when uh, uh, of, of the films that I like, and um, uh, uh, this one happens to have a great script as well, although not a lot of dialogue. So it's in um, Persian Farsi, um, but it's there are parts and because it's black and white that it almost feels like a silent movie because there are these huge long silences. Um, you know, uh, uh, Amipur talks a lot about being um, inspired by the spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone. And again, with, with Sergio Leone's films, you can see there are these... You know, I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West, I think it's like 12 minutes of silence at the beginning of that film, where it's just those long, expansive shots of yeah. the West. And, you know, shoes and trains coming in and sound, but there's really no dialogue for ages. In his, and a lot of his films are quite light on the, on the dialogue. Um, I think a lot because the practicality of an Italian trying to direct Americans and and the less script you have to deal with with actors it yeah. actually is. So I think that's why a lot of the recording of sound being yeah. expensive and difficult. Yeah, especially absolutely. if you're filming outside on locations. It, exactly. So there's yeah a lot of practical reasons of why his films were like that. But you can see that a lot in uh, in uh, Gold because I'm alone at night as well. Um, but one of the reasons why I love it is 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 it fits into this genre that's kind of cropped up in the last sort of. 10 to 15 years um which is kind of slowly becoming one of my favorite film genres which is sort of this kind of neo 80s uh, f- 
films that are set in modern day but have a very 80s aesthetic whether that's the music or the so, so I'm like think, drive exactly i'm thinking of uh, the films of nicholas winding reffin specifically drive right uh, yeah is, is is a great <laughs> example uh, only god forgives as well i don't think it's as uh, good of a film uh 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 neon demon and um, and also uh, Adam Wingard's films, uh, uh, The Guest in particular. Um, if no one's seen that, go and watch that because it's brilliant film. Again, brilliant use of this 80s music. And also what's interesting with these films is often they'll use like modern bands that are doing 80s style music right, as well. Yeah. So it's, it, it's yeah, you're really getting this kind of throwback to 80s, um, but but made contemporary. Um, and, and for me, I, I when I saw this film, I thought a lot about... Um, yeah, Adam Wingard's films, Nicholas Winding Refn's films, um, as, as well as things like uh, Sergio Leone. Um, I always think that's interesting when any piece of art, whether it's music or film or or stage or anything, has a kind of intercultural genre feel where yeah. be, you're setting it in modern day, but because modern day, say, these characters love vintage clothes, they're mm-hmm. all dressing like they're in Greenwich Village in the 60s. And you yeah. go, well, like... It, <laughs> Does that mean we're making a 60s film? No, it yeah. doesn't. It means we're making a modern film, but we're yeah. taking, we're acknowledging the fact that today is influenced by yesterday. It's it's something I had a real love-hate relationship with, with Sex Education, if anyone's seen that on Netflix. And yeah. first it jarred with me, and I just went, this is an 80s American high school, but it, aren't we in Wales? Like, what's <laughs> yeah. like But but as as I watched the rest of this, I actually found it quite charming, and I actually liked... That, you know make a strong stylistic choice and stick to it you can kind of do whatever you want as long yeah. as there's a consistency there and 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 actually i, I think it it ends up working um and, and yeah there's certainly an 80s an 80s aesthetic in in this film um, um and 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 also i think it's it's been hailed as as um uh, a great work of uh, of of feminist film as well because the lead character does have kind of all the power um and 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 again, yeah, kind of making these ethical choices about it uh, uh, being kind of her turning these men into vampires is almost placing judgment on their bad actions, and she's the arbiter of that. And there's something really nice. Uh, yeah, about. I think I think um, having, having not seen the film, and I'm mm. not comparing the two at all, but if you think about um, other kind of uh, hits that mm. have similar themes, something like Dexter, who's yeah, um, a uh, you know a psychopath who uses his kind of he turns he turns his his uh what's the word his hindrance into into a gift by yeah. using it to only you know use his powers against uh, bad people i think it's always a really interesting way to go yeah but also i, I think particularly with vampire uh you know themes and mythology placing the power with a woman is really really important to, mm-hmm. to notice mm-hmm. um not just from a feminist standpoint but from a genre bending standpoint yeah. we don't see that very often when talking about vampires yeah because it is very very kind of rooted yeah. in patriarchal tropes and yeah you know the pure young white virgin who um is going to be you know seduced yeah. and then eaten by dracula mm-hmm. for example yeah um yeah and 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 i'd also say that that there is a, a very much a nod of this film uh, to another great uh, uh, female film director, Catherine Bigelow, um, who did a sort of vampire-esque film called Near Dark in the 90s that's fantastic and, and certainly shares a lot of cinematographic uh, similarities um, with 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 uh, Amipur's work as well here. Um, so yeah, so that's it. I, I, I finish on a, a, a really nice quote that I liked from Amapur, who just said, um, "A vampire is so many things: serial killer, romantic, historian, drug addict, 
she is all of these at some points during this film, which is, uh, yeah. yeah. And I just thought that's a, re- yeah, serial killer romantic historian drug addict. I think that's that's quite a, a, a succinct way of describing kind of what a vampire is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, lovely. Great. Well, yeah. if uh, if any of that got too highbrow for you, don't yeah. worry, because I'm about to bring it down. Brilliant. I say that with reservation, though, because I'm not uh, a, an expert in film, and I, I wouldn't um, call myself a, a, a critic um, when it comes to film, but uh, something I do really take a great deal of joy in is remembering the Blade films ha. from when I was a teenager. Absolutely. Um, I say when I was a teenager, actually the first one came out uh, in 1998, um, yeah. and specifically looking at that one, um, I found it a really interesting uh, piece to look at, because not only is it um, uh, a great deal of fun, um, it is a kind of fast action movie, really, it's a lot yeah. of fight choreo, you know, that's a lot of the movie. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. But I also thought its origins are quite interesting. So, um, apparently, um, in 1996... Uh, Wesley Snipes um, was trying to make a Black Panther film mm. um, and trying to get that into production, um, but found it very, like, really, really difficult and was approached by um, uh, Stephen Norrington, um, who directed yeah. uh, this first Blade <clears throat> um, film. And uh, he, he came up and approached Wesley Snipes and said, well, look, we're doing this, you know, other uh, movie, which is also obviously a Marvel superhero comic. Yeah. Uh, Blade was a, a comic before it was made into the film. And I thought that's quite interesting as well. And, and looking just, you know, starting on kind of Wikipedia basic and then you go yeah. off to different shoots. Quite a few people were saying that actually it was the start of Marvel's success in film. Yeah. Um, so without Blade, you might not have like all the Marvel films that we have today, which is hard to imagine. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the Marvel superhero films before that there's not a great many that stick out i mean i obviously you you had like the incredible hulk tv series and i believe there was a film of that with lou fringham and uh bill bixby from from the tv show um uh there is a dreadful 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 one of the worst films ever made uh fantastic four movie that came out i think about 1990 1991 <laughs> where like like literally uh mr fantastic who's superpowers obviously that he was kind of very elasticated and could stretch his yeah, yeah. arms and legs and there's 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 literally a scene where it's a glove on a broom handle wow yeah I like mean, it's that it, bad. It's that it bad. Got left in. It, yeah. 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 Incredible. It's, it's the mo- but I'm pretty sure. Um. Uh. Now I know. Uh. Uh. My brother-in-law, my sister's husband, Steve, will be listening to this, and he'll correct me here if I'm wrong. But I think there's something to do with that film that it was made specifically so that that studio could retain the rights to make a better version years later so it was like they got the rights from marvel but had to make one like quickly to secure (laughs) the rights to do a better one years later i mean funny the one they made years later wasn't great either but at least it had some kind of budget with it (laughs) but but yeah so absolutely pre-blade i am struggling to think of a of a really great marvel film 
for sure. And I think also it's it's interesting to go, I mean, many people even today will still get, oh, comic books are, you know, for kids, right? Mm. Um, and then, of course, anyone who knows anything about comic books, uh, you, you do, and, and um, uh, I've kind of learned more over the years, you realise that actually there's an incredible kind of moral, morality is a huge part of comic yeah. book culture, as much as you'd find in any Greek play. Yeah. Um, and w- when you think about um, the fact that Blade showed that actually this was a very adult film. Mm-hmm. Um, just briefly, for those of you who don't know the film, in the film, the character of Blade, played by Wesley Snipes, is a dampier, uh, D-H-A-A, uh, D-H-A-M-P-I-R. Um, so that's a human with a vampire's strengths, um, but not their weaknesses. So he's referred to throughout the film as Daywalker. Yeah, um, yeah. Because he can go out in sunlight. Um, but he uh, he has a mentor called Abraham Whistler, played mm-hmm. by uh, Chris Christopherson. Yeah. Um, who, you know, doesn't have much to say, but when he does, it's great. Yeah, um, but sadly doesn't do any country songs. Doesn't do any country no, really. songs, no. I was hoping the Blade, the blade theme yeah, would be... Holy Blade, and he's hunger some vampires. Um, but yeah, great songwriter. Um, and uh, Abraham Whistler and hematologist Karen Jensen, um, mm. they team up to kind of help keep Blade alive yeah. um, and fights against vampires, namely, of course, the very vicious Deacon Frost, um, yeah. played by Stephen Dorff, yeah. uh, who's yeah really wonderfully evil in it. Yeah, a, a, yeah, a great, great actor in the 90s. And then um, I think he got a bit of a reputation of being a bit difficult to work with. Right, um, okay. And then years later... Yeah, like just kind of disappeared and then um, I can't remember the name of the film but Sofia Coppola got him back to basically do this film where he kind of played a version of himself like a, a sort of 90s actor he, he might have been a, a musician in the film that hadn't worked for a while and was living in um, one of these fancy hotels in Beverly Hills uh, right, uh, yeah. and just kind of living off his previous fame and, and it was like this amazing comeback for Dorf but um, ah. yeah an un- underrated actor underrated actor yeah I think he's done um, some HBA series recently mm. um, and so that's nice to see that he's still working um, but the thing I love about Blade is that you have yes you have a lot of uh, nods to Bram Stoker in the sense that his his helper and mentor is called Abraham um, for a well, start yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. and you've got the you know the tropes of vampires not being able to go out in, in daylight uh, that they need blood to survive that they can be very old and they regenerate yeah. um, but it's then completely thrust into 90s LA yeah so it's kind of really all set around these LA kind of techno clubs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which had all this almost Germanic kind of like Berlin techno kind of feel yeah. so everything felt really dangerous and loud and because the vampires only come out at night mm-hmm. it meant that there's, their life was nightclub life Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I just thought that's a really really cool fun energising way yeah. to talk about um, this very old Victorian mythology yeah yeah absolutely you know, I, I I think it it it, it shares that with um uh I think you see that a lot in in a great uh uh, uh Brat Pack nineteen eighties film called The Lost Boys with Kiefer Sutherland, which is a great vampire film, which is sort of about what if vampires were like teen kids hanging out, and it shows like mm. the fact that yeah, the fact that they can only come out at night is is basically it's they spend their social life in in clubs and kind yeah. of hanging out in doing LA, what young people do, and, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think as well, you know, you have to talk about the fact that this was really, 
the first major black superhero in a film. Um, I, 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 yeah, I think it's really important to mention that this also was the first time I'd seen the representation of a vampire as a superhero. So taking yeah. the superpowers, yeah, but you wouldn't describe Dracula as a superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But absolutely, Blade is, is a superhero. But yeah. as you say, in terms of, um, you know, race relations... Yeah. Uh, in 1997, uh, quite a long time ago, this was a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think we'd all rather forget about um, uh, the film called Steel with Shaquille O'Neal, where he (laughs) played some sort of superhero. I mean, it's awful. Um, But certainly major, major kind of, uh, 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 you know, cinematic released film that got attraction. Um, This, I think, was was certainly the first um, where, yeah, where you had an African-American as... uh, not just the lead, but as a, as a superhero, as a, as a you know embodiment of that kind of comic book mythology, um, which is really really important for representation. And and a, I've read things before um, a lot of uh, uh, um, I think it was actually when Black Panther came out, and a lot of the actors in that kind of actually really bigging up Blade as being like when I saw this film, I realised I could play a superhero too, kind of thing. And it's yeah. really important for representation. This film, I think. Uh, definitely, um, definitely. And I also, again, not really kind of too much into it, but Blade being a dampier is a, uh, not just a human with vampire strengths, but that's the result of his mother being human, mm. but being the product of a union between a human and a vampire. So, mm-hmm. as a result, um, he his the fact that he's kind of mixed race as yeah, it were, yeah, yeah. gives him a huge amount of strength and Stephen Dorff is mm. also mixed race um, mm. in terms of vampire mythology mm. um, and is looked down upon by the elders so Stephen Dorff's reason for being a villain is because yeah. he's discriminated against against old, uh, you know by older vampires who don't see yeah. him as good as uh, they are because yeah. of his racial um, ethnicity yeah. and, and I'm, again I'm not saying that it was a huge allegory for race relations in no. the 90s but it is there, and it yeah. is, and it is talked about. And that 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 idea of two sides of the same coin as well is really nice. Um, uh, there's a film that I've not seen yet that's up to on my list called Brightburn, which is essentially Superman. But what if Superman was evil instead? Of, like right. what, what if, yeah. you know? What if the choices he made in his childhood, or what if the way that he was brought up by George and Martha was different, and he used those powers for bad rather than for good? And so <laughs> yeah. that's really. So I think you know you have that in Blade as well with. Dorf's character and with Snipes' character, but essentially, as you say, having the same kind of genetic makeup in terms of being that half, and 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 one deciding to to, to use that for good, and one deciding, you know, one that being his reason for how he became who he became, and that being evil, which is it's a great origin story yeah. on both parts. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, um, yeah, not not uh, quite got the same amount of awards at, uh, or nominations at Cannes. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, but yeah, no, so yeah. Oh, like iconic, Import, absolutely movie. iconic. I mean, and and the second one is good as well. Blade Trinity's awful. Is that with Ryan Reynolds? No, that's that's Blade Trinity. That's Blade Trinity. Yeah, that is not a good. And and I wish it was. <laughs> I wish it was because you and I are both big wrestling fans, and Triple H is in Blade Trinity as a baddie, and I really wanted it to be good, but uh, he cannot act and the film <laughs> I never really did <laughs> do much after no, that no um, uh, so yeah but certainly the first one and, and I do have a lot of time for the second one as well um, yeah great great choices fantastic um, cool what's so, your next one yeah so my next one um, is uh, uh, probably quite a divisive 
choice. It's, it's had mixed reviews uh, all, all along since it came out. Uh, I really like it, but I can understand why people don't, which is, is it's actually similar of a lot of this director's work. Um, it's a film called The Hunger that came out in 1983, uh, directed by Tony Scott, who's one of my favourite directors ever, but is kind of commonly known as probably like the best, like the best bad director there ever was. Really? Kind of. Well, yeah, because I think a lot of people... I just think of him as Ridley Scott's brother. Well, yes, yeah. Which is shameful. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and he... Um, so, yeah, he, he came from music videos, which is why his films have a certain aesthetic that, again, as I say, unapologetically, I'm very much style over substance. So mm. that's why I love, because his films are so visually striking. Um, I think less so in his bigger kind of blockbusters like Top Gun and... and things like that but but certainly um in films like domino with kira knightley that, that i quite like didn't get great reviews um and a film i love i think maybe my favorite film of his man on fire with denzel washington great um, movie great I really like underrated domino, really underrated. but you know he you know he does yeah and you can make fun of him because he does a million jump cuts and he <laughs> he you know does slow-mo stuff and he, he messes around with things but he has a slick visual style that's what people always say about tony scott is it's slick his films feel really slick and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't but uh uh the hunger i i absolutely love it was actually his first uh his first feature film after doing a lot of music videos oh wow um, and it stars uh susan sarandon uh catherine Deneuve, and david bowie Wow. And, um, and what a great lineup! Yeah, and it's basically this love triangle between the three of them. So Deneuve and Bowie, oh Bowie, are is it Bowie or Bowie? Bowie, Bowie, Bowie rhymes with Zoe. There you um, go. Courtesy of um, Nicholas Pegg, uh, Bowie's biographer and also writer of a lot of pantos that I've done. There you go. Uh, so yeah, so uh, David Bowie and uh, Catherine Deneuve are this uh, vampire couple who've been together for about three hundred years. He was a celebrated cellist. Um, and and um, basically, as time has gone on, he's started to age, and so they employ the help of Susan Sarandon's character, who's like this sort of occultist, like doctor. So she's right. so she's like a doctor for vampires, basically. Um, yeah, vampire uh, doctor. Yeah. Um, and then, but then she ends up, her and Catherine Deneuve end up falling in love together. So there's this kind of, ah. uh, yeah, sort of love, but, but, but he's, because he's getting older, David Bowie, he's sort of almost happy to let her. So it, yeah, there's, there's a lot of this kind of love triangle, menage a trois kind of thing going on in the film. Um, a very heavily, uh, sexualized film. Um, I think a lot of people actually refer to it as an erotic thriller, although I don't, I mean, when, because I think of things like Basic Instinct and things like that when people yeah. say that, which, and I don't think it's anything like that at all. Um, but, but yeah, sex is a big part of it. Um, uh, but again, terrific use of music, um, uh, beautiful uh, um, scene uh, uh, where there's a great use of uh, uh, one of my favourite pieces of classical music ever, which is the Flower Duet uh, by oh, Deline. yeah. Um, uh, it's, it features in Shawshank Redemption. No, that's a different it, piece of music. But oh, I always it? think it's that. Oh, I always think it's that. As yeah, well. because because it's two operatic sopranos singing a duet. But I it's never actually knew complete, what those two ladies yeah, were singing about. No, that's a completely different piece of music. But in my head, I always replace it with the flower duet. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so um, uh, that's re yeah, really nice. Um, uh, 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 Bauhaus, Bella Lugosi's Dead, I think, yeah. is used at one point in it. Um, and um, yeah, it's just a really cool film. And, and 
really slick visuals. And one of the reasons that I like it is because it flips the eternal thing on its head. And because what they realize of what's happening to David Bowie is because the vampire mythology has been wrong and it's not eternal youth, it's eternal life. So you don't stop aging, you just don't die. Which means that your quality of so, life surely is going yeah, to get worse so, the older so, you get. So it flips the... De- it's almost mm. like the be careful what you wish for thing. Like it yeah. flips that desire on its head because it's... you. Yeah, you don't stop aging. You, ju- you, you just keep on and on and on. Um, and, and there's great uh, 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 visual effects uh, in this film. Um, it was really lauded. I think it won a couple of awards for makeup visual effects of the aging of Bowie as, wow. as the film goes on. Um, what a great dude to get to play a vampire as well. Uh, and yeah, he's so good. Oh, there's a great story where he um, he has an incredibly raspy voice in the film. And he said in order to get that, he'd go and stand on, uh, I think it was the, the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, no, no, it wasn't the talks. It was shot in London. It was the... Um, uh, oh, the the oh the beautiful Hammersmith Bridge. I think, oh yeah, the green one. Yeah. Um, and he'd go and he'd go and stand on that every night, and he said he'd just scream punk songs at the top of his lungs every night, <laughs> and that's <laughs> what gave him this raspy voice. <laughs> that's one way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. And and he also actually learned cello for real for the part. Of course well, he did. Of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Again, if you've not seen it, give it a watch. I mean, it's not the greatest film in the world, but I, for me, visually, absolutely uh, beautiful film, and I just really like that sort of subversive twist on on the idea of eternal life and actually being specific about what that means and yeah. not being eternal youth. I, yeah, I, yeah, I quite like that. Really cool. Nice. Also, it made me think, um, just when you were talking about the love triangle... Um, and then this doesn't really particularly apply to the Scott movie you're talking about, but there is a, an interesting thing that I came up in research uh, of the lesbian vampire genre. Yeah. And there is something, we talked even about the sexualization um, of, of vampires throughout mm-hmm. and the sensual, seductive kind of thing that is teased out a lot in even in the Stoker novel yeah. with the brides of uh, uh, of Dracula. Well, it was, um, it was, it was in, you know... Uh, tried to get it banned when it came out and things like that because yeah. it was seen as this incredibly sexualized book which you know when you read it now you go is it i thought it was about property law but uh, <laughs> yeah. obviously yeah back at, at the time you, you can see because there are certain elements yeah like you say with the brides and everything um and the uh, and, and you can see as uh basically with the you know as gay rights have have developed you know you you see a a form of specifically lesbian vampire uh, tropes coming up in a lot of vampire films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I just think that's quite an interesting idea that you've got something forbidden yeah. and something that, you know, sadly is still, as you say in Iran, mm. still forbidden. Yeah, um, yeah. This idea of, of forbidden fruit and love a dub- with love as a double-edged sword. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Absolutely. When you think about gay rights analogies. Yeah, definitely. Um. So my next um, choice um, is, rather than talking about a film based on a comic, is a comic that, to my knowledge, was never made into a film. Okay. Um, and it's a 1969 comic called Vampirella. Yes. And it's a, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of cheating a bit because it's not something I knew about before I started researching for this. 
but I thought, well, well, any of you comic book fans out there might uh, might be interested. Uh, a 1969 comic by Trina Robbins, um, who was quite influential. She was the first woman ever to write Wonder Woman um, in the 80s, and she was brought onto that. And it was also written by Forrest J. Ackerman, who's a massive sci-fi writer. Um, went to the first ever like sci-fi conventions. It came up with futuristic costumes. Sorry, just to correct you, uh, it was a 1996 film. Of there was a 96 film. Well, we'll have to watch that yeah, now. Uh, co-starring Roger Daltrey, of all people. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I want to yeah. see that. Yeah. The Barella! <laughs> um, but apparently uh, Ackerman was a huge uh, influence on the likes of Ray Bradbury and L. Ron Hubbard. So mm-hmm. someone who started off um, as a sci-fi short story writer, then got into comic books um, and was kind of really heralded. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Stephen King used to write uh, short stories entries into one of Ackerman's journals that he was an editor of. Yeah. So you've got a real kind of uh, powerhouse um, writing this. And I just loved it because it was a completely batty, different take to anything else I'd heard of. Yeah. Um, so the origin story is that Vampirella is... Um, a female vampire who lives on the, plan- uh, the on the planet Draculon, um, which obviously is a nod to the Stoker yeah. thing, much yeah. like Abraham is a, a nod to uh, yeah. Van Helsing in Blade. Um, and Draculon is running out of blood, which flows on the planet like water does mm-hmm. on Earth. And so she goes to Earth to find how she can harvest blood and kind of save her planet. And I thought, this sounds yeah. like a bit of an environmental movie. Like, yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah. Avatar is a kind of analogy for... Uh, actually, I, I should talk about the um, the original film that Avatar is based upon. Um, the Well, I mean, um, there's loads, isn't there? I'm thinking uh, specifically about the forest. Legend of Fern Gully. Legend of Fern Gully. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's also Dances with Wolves. It's Yeah, it very much Pope does. Pocahontas, like, yeah. But the idea of this the saving nature kind of story. Yeah. Um, and also a female superhero. So she's a, a you know, a force for good, um, but also has to get her blood somehow. Mm-hmm. So there's this real interesting kind of, um, yeah, comic book setup where you've got someone on Earth. Um, there's also a little nod to Dracula later on in the comic book series. At one point, she discovers that Dracula was originally on the planet Draculon, but was was um, kind of expelled, and he went to Earth. Yeah. Um, but all of this wouldn't have happened, um, and she never would never have heard of Earth, if it had not been for two space... Uh, well, astronauts that landed on the planet Draculon as they were exploring the universe. And I thought, this is a really on-the-money time to be writing about this because the comic came out in 69 yeah. and man landed on the moon in 69. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a real, like, quick response. So I just thought that's a really nice example of sci-fi reacting to the now, which is something that you don't often see. Mm-hmm. Normally, mm-hmm. I imagine sci-fi uh, as a genre going to either... <laughs> like as we said like intercultural timelines like steampunk or going way into the future to mm-hmm. things that we can't possibly imagine yeah um yeah. whereas this is kind of a, an immediate reaction to the space landing the moon landing yeah yeah and then running with that um i also really liked um after they re the magazine the the comic strip was uh vampirella was um their publisher ended and they uh, harris uh took uh, took it on mm. uh as one of their comics uh and they rewrote the origin story so that vampirella was the daughter of Lir- lilith 
who in kind of Jewish yeah. uh, folklore was the first bride of Adam yes. in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. But she never submitted to Adam and so was uh, cast out yeah. and gave birth to demons. Yes. Um, and I just thought, what a great idea to take that kind of patriarchal trope, turn it on its head and say, that's why Vampirella's are a superhero is because she was born of Lilith who wouldn't submit to the first man Absolutely. and was cast out by God. So again, that religious iconography that we talked about, the Julia Christian yeah, 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 yeah. links, but saying actually that's why they're not an anti-hero, they are a, an actual hero, but but that makes God the villain. So actually at the end of that storyline, it is tied up that they yeah. they team up with God to, uh, right, yeah. to kind of go against her, her mother Lilith, um, who was a demon. But yeah, you can see that there's a real uh, mm-hmm. um, zeal for turn, t- taking things, turning turning it on its head and fighting a status quo there. And I think that's something that just listening to, you know, your suggestions and choices as well, ten, I think vampires are quite good excuses for taking real life situations and ch- change, like, Let's look at it from an alternate reality, not just with oh there are vampires that exist, yeah. but also with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I th- I'm interested to see that maybe maybe that's why it keeps coming back. Yeah, maybe there will there'll always be vampire movies or plays or songs or whatever because people will always be interested in the opportunity to turn the world on its head and see what a reality would have looked like if yeah. you had blood drinking monsters with fangs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fab, great. Yeah. A good one for any comic book fans out there. Absolutely. Um, Vampirella by Trina Robbins and uh, and Forrest J. Ackman. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, uh, my next uh, choice is... Now, I would <laughs> say... I would, I would argue that my next choice is probably the most culturally pervasive piece of vampire fiction ever. Second after Dracula. Whoa! I, I, if you actually think about it, I would say that you have Dracula and then you have this. Well, I don't know what it is, so I know no. I want to guess, but I mean, I mean, I could be. I suppose maybe you could talk a little bit about Anne Rice's books and things like Interview with the Vampire and Lestat and Queen of the Damned and all that stuff. But, but for me, I think when you think about vampires, people would think about Dracula first, and then. I, Certainly people of our generation, and maybe about 10 years older. Uh, okay, can I guess? Yeah. Is it Twilight? No. Okay. No. Or I suppose, oh, maybe that would be now. God, I hadn't even thought that. Um, but no, no, it is. Oh, okay. I know what it is. Yeah. It's Buffy. It's Buffy. Of course, of course it, it is. I, I wonder yeah. if I wonder if uh, there are any listeners out there who Guessed it haven't right. seen Buffy and have seen Twilight. That's interesting yeah. if there is a generation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. To me, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When you talk about vampires, you know, it, it has to be in the conversation because um, yeah, of it, course. It, 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 yeah, for for you know, um, six years, it 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 redefined even what vampires looked like. You know, they they went a completely different way with the with the design of them, with their sort of weird wrinkly foreheads and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But but yeah, I mean, it just became such a massive piece of pop culture. Um, so created by Joss Whedon, um, I mean, you all know what Buffy is, so I'm not going to spend that much time explaining what Buffy the Vampire Slayer was, because I, surely. Yeah. Um, uh, but but yeah, essentially uh, about um, a high school, uh, female high school student who discovers that she's essentially like the chosen one 
to um, uh, yeah rid the world of vampires and that her high school is built on something called the Hellmouth where all these vampires and demons come out into the world of and <laughs> yes that's the reason why she's there and she's been tasked to uh, save the world basically um, it's interesting I, I um, actually not not linked I wasn't thinking about this podcast at all but I uh, ended up reading a series of things on on BuzzFeed the other day uh, written by a guy that literally that just watches the first episode and last episode of a series that he's never watched okay and kind of talks about it and talks about how they change things like that and one of them was buffy and he kept saying it's harry potter it's harry potter everything's harry really? yeah i mean i don't know because i've never really read the books or seen the films but apparently yeah he was saying um uh the sort of uh uh the master who's the main vampire in buffy and buffy's very, very similar to harry and voldemort and right the okay. idea of this chosen one and discovering it at the period of time in life and and yeah um, the real heroes, heroes journey. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's become so culturally pervasive that there is actually a whole um, uh, subsection of um, uh, academia that's known as Buffy Academia, and, and there really? is peer-reviewed paper, academic papers about the cultural importance of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And there I can are believe that universities yeah. that do modules on it, and and yeah, it's, it's, it's huge, absolutely huge, and, and iconic, uh, and synonymous almost with the '90s, you know. Um, made a huge star out of Sarah Michelle Gellar huge star out of Sarah Michelle Gellar um, and yeah and and again great to have uh, a a strong female protagonist especially in the late 90s when there was still so much sexism on television Uh, uh, a real feminist hero and still kind of put like that today Um, and you know uh, Joss Whedon's become a bit problematic in in recent years and there's some stuff come out about him that's not particularly good Um, but but, but, uh, he, he talked at the at the time when he made it about the idea of Buffy was that he wanted to take um uh something we talked about in this podcast before I think the trope of the last girl yeah which is prevalent through all horror films uh that it's and and it, and it tends to be the idea that it's normally um a, a female character that's portrayed as being sort of quite quite weak quite timid and scared and, and you watch the strength through because she ends up being the the the, uh, the final girl I should say rather than the last girl the yeah. final girl is the official name of the of the trope of, of a character um and uh and 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 you see the strength of that character form over the course of the film and what he wanted to do was kind of turn on his head and say well what if that character was strong from the beginning like why does that character have to be weak and then shown to be strengthened those are like yeah there's something a little bit misogynist about that so he was like let's have her That's be a strong it. female character um so that's one of the reasons why I think uh, uh, Buffy's so great is because I think it, it was it was a really great piece of of, of feminist uh, 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 television. Um, I, I mean, I I know um, our course director at drama school, Stephen Dykes. Yeah, uh, it's one of his favorite shows of all time, and he and and you know this is someone that's incredible kind of academic brain, and he talks a lot about the cultural importance of of Buffy so you might laugh when I say it but there's there's like I said there's an awful lot of academics out there who really kind of tout the the significance of the series I, I think you're, you're absolutely right and um and I, I also think that without haloing Joss Whedon as you say nobody's uh should should be kind of um you know that th- is problematic but I remember in response to Joss Whedon and Buffy and uh Fireflies and mm-hmm. um and some other stuff that he'd been doing was the Angel. He was a spin-off of, of yeah. Buffy. But um, he said, why do you keep... I think an interviewer said, why do you keep writing uh, stories with strong female characters? 
Yeah. And he said, because you're still asking me that question. Exactly. And yeah. I thought that was a really interesting quote because, of, of course, yes, it is wonderfully you know, forward thinking and, um, and feminist, but also obvious to us now. But at yeah. the time this was happening in the 90s, it really, really wasn't. Yeah. Um, and so I think it did do a, a yeah. lot to change. Yeah, and, and you know, lots of stuff in there as well, like normalising sex, uh, uh, same-sex relationships with Willow and Tara's yeah. relationship. It's not in, and it's portrayed it's so well because it's not fetishized and it's not, it's it's not really make, making a point of the fact that they're in a lesbian relationship. It's just like they're two people in a relationship, yeah. and it's never really part of the. It's just so accepted and, and seems to be, so, and, and everyone accepts it, and it's just yeah, and that's really nice. Um, uh, and, and I just think the writing is so good. It's so fast-paced. It's so witty. It's just overladen with pop culture references, which is really fun. And and I think it captures the real banter of what American 90s high school kids were talking like, rather than a lot of other sort of 90s teen films that were coming out that time on teen TV shows, um, where, uh, uh, you know, you actually had writers in their 40s and 50s who did, were guessing at what teenagers sounded like. You still see it today, you know, and you could, teenagers don't talk like that, you yeah. know. Um, and, and I think what Joss Whedon did really well was really capture the authentic voice of the late 90s teenager. Um, and there's as much about teenage angst and growing up and dealing with puberty into adulthood as there is about vampires in in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, and and making vampires, again, like some of the other things we've talked about on this list, three-dimensional, uh, rounded, shades of grey figures, because you do have people like Angel, who is a protagonist in the show. You have people like Spike, who becomes one of the main heroes of the show. Is and that actually Seth ends up, Green? Uh, uh, no, that's that's Oz. He's a werewolf. Oh, he's, oh yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, but, no. Uh, Spike, played by James Masters, the British one with the bleak blonde hair. Who oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buffy yeah, yeah. ends I got up. You. Once Angel leaves, that becomes the main love story as Buffy <laughs> and Spike. Very, and then, like, Justin Timberlake kind of hair there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, he ends up sacrificing himself at the end for her, oh. I think. Uh, I, Spike's my favourite character. I think he's, a, he's got a fascinating journey throughout. But if you chart his journey from the uh, all, all through six seasons of Buffy, is is really interesting. Um, uh, and I just wanted to talk about a couple of episodes in particular particular that stuck stick out for me I and mean, it's been years since i've watched it I'd, I'd quite like to go and watch it back from the beginning actually and see how much it holds up but um even now years after i've uh, since in years since i've seen any of it um two episodes in particular stick out for me uh one is is obviously once more with feeling because it's just brilliant it's a completely sung through musical episode um <laughs> and yeah. it's just but the songs are so good they're like they're genuinely so good um and I just, yeah, Edinburgh Fringe at some point needs to do a stage adaptation of Once More with Feeling, so it would be brilliant. It uh, would be very and, successful. Uh, yeah, too. Go, go down so well in there. Um, and yeah, so just as a musical theatre fan and, and as a, a, a something fun that stuck with my mind about that show and a real sense of irony that the show had would be that episode. Um, but but I think my favourite ever Buffy episode, uh, and actually I, to me this is one of the most... Mentioned on last week's uh, podcast, or it might have been on the. It was on the Jonathan Creek one, and I was talking a lot about because of the way that I view film in a very analytic way. I don't get scared by a lot of horror things. Hmm. So the the list of things that I've been scared by on film is quite odd. Um, <laughs> one being that episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark that I mentioned. Uh, uh, one being a weird eighties. Uh, straight to TV two-parter um, American adaptation of Alice in Wonderland uh, and and the Jabberwocky scenes 
are genuinely the most terrifying thing I've, I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> that, and then the third thing, out of all the things that have ever scared me, would probably be the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Hush. Uh, and you've got these um, uh, people that are very kind of long and thin and they hover above the ground and they take everyone's voices away. And oh the whole episode goodness. is in near silence. Um, and uh, and because that's the thing about Buffy as well, it wasn't just vampires, it was a lot of other kind of, because you had this hell mouth, it was all the other kind of demon things. Interacting with other well. supernatural forces. Yeah. Um, and, and I forget what they were, were they called? The gentlemen? Something like that, I think. Um, and, and they, yeah, they sort of just floated. And like I say, they were elongated, very, very thin, bold and had these sort of permanent kind of grimaces um and they made no noise and they took away the voices of everyone mm. that they kind of went through and it was really chilling it's interesting talking about the comparison with harry potter mm. might be very much of a death eater right um, who would take the soul from throughout the mouth but they're, right they they're exactly as you just described <laughs> interesting yeah um so uh yeah i mean i don't really have too much more to say other than just if you've never watched it do go back and watch because it's it's just it's just fantastic it's a fantastic six seasons of 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 television that remained consistently strong largely throughout there was a bit when near towards the end where they really sexualized her and spike and there was a lot of like every episode had quite for the time quite graphic sex scenes between the two of them and yeah. it got a bit repetitive and I wasn't quite sure what it was trying to do outside of being a bit titillating and so I remember at the time thinking oh, I'm not, not being prudish or anything I was just I didn't know what it, what purpose it served so frequently other than to say that they were very animally attracted to each other and there was one particular great scene where um, it's that they're, they're sort of having a, a, a fight that then turns into them having sex in the whole house crumbles down oh, around yeah. them and they're like breaking this because they're both such strong uh, uh physically Passionate strong people. people um uh but then it, but then yeah it was kind of law of diminishing returns and they kept doing similar things like that and i was like that then makes that bit kind of less iconic as a scene which as it was uh initially um but yeah but other than that which is a small quibble largely i i think um it's yeah it's just fantastic and i think again it shows what what something joss whedon is is really good at is ensemble right that that mm. that's why they brought him on to do avengers because they'd made all these great superhero films of single standalone superheroes and went oh wait yeah we forgot the end game no pun intended was to <laughs> get uh 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 you know all of these together to do this first avengers film so when he comes on board for avengers assemble the reason why he came on board was because he is so good at writing uh equitably yeah across characters even though buffy is the star by the end of the first series you know as much about xander willow uh uh giles you know they all have story arcs they all have story arcs and that and the he's so good at placing importance and weight equally across characters but in a really economic way that you don't feel like you're going well, wait a minute, I didn't realize his character was that important. Why are you telling me something? It doesn't feel like he's doing it for the sake of it. He's really clever at, 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 at yeah, creating on ensembles. Um, and I think that's one of the real strengths of Buffy as well, is this ensemble at the heart of it that actually reminds me quite a bit of what Bram Stoker does really well in the original Dracula book is he creates that ensemble and you know yeah. who Quincy Morris is. There's and so you much know, detail. You know, yeah, you you know who who Jack is. You know who these guys are, um, Holmwood and all the group. 
are, when it are comes, so well drawn out. Um, that, when, it, when it comes to the, the harsh like, decisions yeah. they have to make, you kind of know what they're likely to do. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to the crunch. And, yeah. and again, I think Stoke, again, because of the way that Stoker wrote it, he places, you know, everyone has a diary entry or a letter at some point. So you hear from everyone's first person perspective by the end of that book, you've heard from all of them from their mouths, which is... Yeah really nice and um and yeah and i think that's a really the ensemble in buffy i feel is 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 very similarly based on the on especially when you you know giles is the van helsing kind of older figure kind of guiding the young fighters to it's yeah it's yeah it's really clever um and also you know without being reductive to all the other academic studies you know it it is just hugely important to recognize the fact that if you're a young woman growing up in the 90s a teenager or a kid to see a badass uh sarah michelle geller beating up people being physically and emotionally strong and intelligent and independent uh is you know watching that once a week for six years is hugely landscape changing absolutely absolutely yeah yeah yeah, I don't um, think emphasise that enough. And sure. also, without uh, Giles, Anthony Head going off to play Giles, mm-hmm. um, we wouldn't have had Stuart Milligan to play uh, Klaus, Adam Klaus in Jonathan Creek. So your next choice. All right, fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> My next choice. No, you're right. I'm so I am so happy that we have Stuart Milligan in our lives. I mean, I mean, I think it was. I think Anthony had made the right choice. Um, <laughs> my next uh, choice is uh, a song because, as okay. they rightly said at the beginning, it doesn't have to be films. It doesn't have to be no. Um, you know, one specific medium of media. And I thought, oh come on, there must be some songs about vampires. You didn't choose the band Vampire Weekend then. I, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> Although that was a nice uh, summer in sixth form. Um, <laughs> someone had their skull candy headphones on oh, yeah, uh, yeah. and was playing uh, Oxford comma. Um, <laughs> takes me right back. But I do uh, have to kind of mention um, the fact that there weren't that many songs I could think of off the top of my head that, about vampires. Mm-hmm. Put it into Google. There are loads. Yeah. Um, Honourable mentions for songs. Blue Oyster Cult, who, again, you everyone knows from Don't Fear the Reaper. Yeah. Ridiculously heavy, screamy, scary vampire songs. I've got two. Um, but there was there was also... Um, oh, also, uh, sorry. Um, Black Parade, My Chemical Romance. They've got yes, quite they've a few got, yeah. songs. Smashing Pumpkins. Um, but the one I actually knew um, and had listened to um, was a song called We Want Young Blood by mm. Radiohead. Ah, yeah. Now, Radiohead can split people a bit because some people go, oh, it's dreary and depressing, but I don't really care. I love them. Really important, groundbreaking, influential band. Um, And this is a really good example. If you do hate them, you can listen, you can hate listen to it because it's a really good example of how slow and marching and kind of pessimistic um, Radiohead can be. Um, I, I... I think actually Rolling Stone said um, it's possibly the most gothic tune in the Radiohead discography. And I don't think you can talk about gothic culture without talking about vampire culture. No, no, absolutely. Gothic horror as a a film genre, but as a music genre as well, I don't think really would exist without the iconography and mythology surrounding vampire 
vampire culture. Well, Did you, you know, say vampire culture? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we we we, as you will have heard, we opened this podcast with uh, a Marilyn Manson track uh, about vampires, Wh- which is very gothic. Well, horror, yeah, I think he, the Goth Father, he's been called <laughs> the Goth Father. Great, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Although I think Robert Smith might have something to say about that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think he's, he'd be a much more <laughs> civilized. I think you'd have a good, a good debate with Robert yeah. Smith. Um, yeah. You probably could be Robert Marilyn Manson there, couldn't you? So he's an intelligent man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's this creepy piano-led um, number. But Tom York is singing from the perspective of an old vampire. And he's talking about wanting these, this young blood. and he, and he, But not just because he needs it, but he wants to suck the life out of the, the weak. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or the, the strong to make them weak. Mm-hmm. And I think, knowing what Tom York is like in my imagination and all the kind of Radiohead lyrics over the years, tend to be quite liberal and left-leaning, um, but also pessimistic. And I think it's this kind of analogy for yeah. the older generation and the 7% who tend to be old white men who suck money out of the earth and yeah, increase yeah, yeah. inequity within the world. Um and I and I thought that's quite interesting when you think of the demonization of capitalism, mm-hmm. the figures that we have for you know rich Bond villains, right? Who are you know set on taking away everyone's opportunity and everyone's yeah. wealth in order to hoard it all from themselves. I think that vampires are really good um, analogies for that, yeah, because they're things that they. They're monsters who depend on others being strong so that they can then harness that strength yeah. and kind of steal it. Um, and I think this song just really sums that up. Um, also, um, I, I, I just I, I thought this myself, but Rolling Stone uh, said it a lot better because their music journalists <laughs> said, it's hard to tell what is more sinister. Tom York moaning, we want the sweetmeats or the slow, sickly clap that punctuates the piano chords. And I thought that is really, that is really true. You've got Tom York yelling out, we we want this, in this high falsetto that yeah, sounds yeah, 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 old. Yeah. Um, he's kind of cracked his voice. But it is, there's something really sinister about it. And I thought it's really nice to also link the fact that as much as Buffy is a fantasy story and an analogy, as much as uh, you know, uh, Vampirella is a, a comic book and it's escapism, there are always little moralistic stories and analogies in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Radiohead's uh, We Want Young Blood does that really well. Fab. Fab. Yeah, I must re-listen to it. I, I remember it, but uh, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, cool. So my uh, uh, fourth... Out of the fifth choice, uh, five choices uh, on my list is a 2010 film called Stakeland. Stakeland. Uh, Stakeland. It's an American independent film uh, directed by a director called Jim Mickle. Uh, and it was written by uh, Jim Mickle and the star of the film, uh, Nick Dimitri. So interesting sort of interesting makeup of the director and the star also both wrote it which is okay. unusual but yeah. quite nice um and one uh, it's it's a it's it's a brilliant film it's it's really kind of brooding and moody and one one review said imagine if Terence Malick had re- made 28 days later and so oh, it's it's okay. yeah you've got these quite sort of again again similar to uh, girl walks home you've got these sort of quite long 
empty sciences where it's kind of quite vast expanses. Um, but one of the reasons I chose it is because I think it does something different to a lot of other vampire things. And it's it's flipped it on its head and it's actually set in a post-apocalyptic world where there's been a vampire pandemic, um, which would be a great name for a punk band. Vampire, vampire pandemic. pandemic. Um, yeah. but, but so in this film vampires are the majority so so the minority of people are so so it's not like you're battling some unseen force it's like that's just normal everyone's a vampire except these few people that are trying to find refuge right um, okay so I, I would i can't quite remember when the walking dead came out but i think it's just after this film and there's a lot of similarities and and something the walking dead i think does really really well and and has done kind of consistently until it went off the rails a few years ago and that's kind of come back again a bit um but it's still been running for far too long. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but when The Walking Dead first started, and, and still does to some extent, is it made... It, it never made the zombies the antagonists. That was just a part of life that you had to deal with. Oh, and there are zombies. Yeah, the antagonists were always other humans, because that's what walk, The Walking Dead is about, is the collapse of human civilization in something like that which you can certainly see echoes of at the moment with what's going on but yeah, um, certainly. but 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 yeah so what what stakeland does actually is is it pits um the the uh this sort of older um sort of vampire hunter who's known just as mister throughout the film played by nick dimici um and he kind of picks up this sort of orphan teen uh and and the the two of them kind of become this like duo and 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 it's about these odd people they meet along the way they meet a nun at one point um uh, uh played by kelly mcgillis who again was just like the biggest star in the 90s like Waterworld and 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 witness and things like that and then just kind of disappeared so really nice to see her in this film strength i think for ages um and uh and and all these other kind of populated uh, this place populated with all these kind of odd odd people trying to find this refuge but the 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 baddies are this kind of very commercialized evangelical group who have pit themselves against the vampires but right. there's obviously other stuff going on underneath so they're kind of not to be trusted and and yeah it's that sort yeah very much like right-wing gun-toting evangelicals that you see in in america um uh if anyone's seen uh, uh, Red State, Kevin Smith's kind of uh, horror that's based on Westboro Baptist Church. They're yeah. kind of sim- similar to that. Um, uh, but but yeah, and and it's it's just this kind of journey. It's very much a journey film. It's a road movie mm. um, uh, about them trying to get north to this specific refuge place. Um, so again, lo- lots of echoes of, of, of Walking Dead and, and and you know the film probably would work equally as well if you if it was zombies rather than vampires. You could <laughs> yeah. kind of re- replace them. Um, but it does happen to be vampires in this. Um, and yeah, there's just some beautiful moments in the film. There's one in particular, uh, it's brilliant. And as again, as I think I've mentioned many times from this podcast, uh, I'm obsessed with uh, uh, continuous long takes or tracking shots that go like like anything yeah. that isn't edited for a while, um, which is why I love films like Birdman, you know, uh, uh, made to like it's in one take. Um, although wasn't a massive fan of old... Uh, um, what was it called 1917 that i for me that i know everyone loved it for me that didn't work i felt like i was playing a video watching someone play, play a video game but um <laughs> which is also very popular now though isn't it <laughs> well yeah oh yeah on the old twitch but um uh that's more about the positioning where the camera was and the majority of the time you know you've got george Mackay's back and so therefore you do look it looks like 
how a third yeah. person video game is laid out but anyway um but there's this great long take scene where they get to this camp and um and i was reading it was completely necessity because they were battling the light coming up um because uh, i think it was shot yeah. quite quickly um uh and so they realized that the only way they could get what they need to get done was actually just shoot everything in one take rather than have to keep stopping and starting wow, so I it see. was purely so they could finish before before dawn um uh and um the, the result is this yeah lovely beautiful long take um in the middle of the film um but yeah yeah really 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 great film there's there's some lovely dark humor in it as well um uh and these yeah these beautiful kind of quiet moments very Mal- malachian um uh sort of silences and shots of nature and things like that um but yeah really 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 recommend going and checking it out that sounds really not a lot of people have seen it and it's yeah it's a really really good movie and uh yeah i i i love that idea as well of just flipping the mm. normality on its head something yeah. again we talked about quite early on like yeah this seems to be again it's, it's, it's done a lot in through art but i think it's something that vampire films allow people to do really well yeah is to flip you know normality on its head and see what the alternate reality like is. well yeah and, and you know i think i think it's something you know it's it's something that uh uh um Marvel did really well with with uh, uh, the X Men by by you know kind of making it a world where a large amount of the population are quote unquote mutants and they yeah. were able to talk a lot about racial divides. Uh, there was a lot about kind of uh, uh, this X Men as well being around the AIDS epidemic and things like that and about being other and being different um, uh, and using something like a superhero or a vampire to make that analogy is um it allows us yeah, to talk about really diff- more difficult things yeah absolutely fantastic um now it would be very remiss um if i didn't talk about the film nosferatu oh yes a symphony of horror mm. full title um Nosferatu uh is something that actually I hadn't watched until I got to drama school. Oh really? Um but I had seen some other I've seen I'd seen Doctor of Cabinet, uh, the Cabinet, Cabinet of, of Dr. Caligari Cabinet, yeah. um as a kind of example of German expressionism. Um so when I watched Nosferatu I kind of went, "Oh yeah, here we go. Silent mm. German expressionist film. I I'll get this." Um but I I, I cannot stress enough how if Bram Stoker's Dracula is the birth of kind of modern vampire culture as we know it, I would say Nosferatu is probably, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, probably mm-hmm. as if influential, if not more, than the original novel. Yeah, I think I think a lot of what we know of not just Dracula, but vampires today comes from uh, Max Schreck's yeah. uh, uh, performance uh, in, in that film. For sure, as uh, Count Count Orlock, is it? I believe it is uh, Count yeah. Orlock. Yeah, um, it's a 1922 silent German expressionist horror film, uh, b- uh, directed by F. W. Murnau. Um, I don't know how, if I'm saying that yeah, correctly. Um, yes, sorry, Matt Shrek as Count Orlock, um, and so he's got uh, an interest in both a new residence, oh, great property, and the wife of his estate agent. So again, a little bit of sexualization there and victimization of the woman there. Um, but it is very obviously uh, an adaptation of of Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. So you kind of have to give that nod. But it was unauthorized and unofficial. 
Um, and so that's why he doesn't play Count Dracula, but he plays Count Orlock. I was just about to ask, because I, I was going to say, I, I have a memory of reading something years ago that that was wise, because of course yeah. we're talking about a time where Dracula wouldn't have been out of copyright, which is mad to think of that now. Really, but, yeah. But, but yeah, and, and that, yeah, uh, the Stoker estate refused the right. So yeah, Murnau just kind of made up a different version. A different of, version. It's basically Dracula. Um, yeah, but it is. It is basically Dracula, and um, but a lot shorter. Um, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, so he, it's about this idea of wanting to get a proper property. Um, so the, again, this idea of having to be vital into places and mm-hmm, have to mm-hmm. to do um, all of that is there. Having said that, um, that didn't make it okay. Even though changing all those things. Uh, Stoker's widow still campaigned to get it shut down. So although it was a, a 20, 1922 film, um, it wasn't uh, released in the 90, in the United States until nineteen twenty nine, mm-hmm. so seven years after its original premiere. Um, yeah, there was some lovely kind of little things about it um, that um, that I kind of wanted to talk about. I think, na- namely, as a silent film, I think you you got to talk about the importance of music. Yeah. Um, and that was composed by uh, German composer Hans Erdmann. It is incredibly... You know, you've, you've got everything that you think about, a cheesy... Say, like a hammer horror. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely wouldn't exist. No horror, really, genre would yeah. exist, really, without, uh, you know, 20s Berlin. But I think specifically this film... Um, the high angles and the elongation mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Dracula's body, meaning that the long fingernails, yeah. it's stuff that you see echoed throughout vampire films yeah. from from now on. Um, but even 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 more pervasively, like you know, you talk about the um, the uh, the Mets adverts. The Judderman is completely oh, yeah. taken from Nosferatu. Um, and and that was banned because it was too scary. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. the Judderman. Yeah, like, yeah. That was he was a ballet dancer. Mate. Yeah. Um, was it? Sh- did you say Schnapps? Uh, yeah, Na- yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Metz was the company. Was Metz, it? Metz was the company. Right, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. Brilliant. Brilliant advert. Um. Yeah. So I think a hugely influential movie. Um. But it also it did not necessarily in all the right ways. One thing that it did do is cement this idea of having a female victim who mm-hmm. was kind of white and virginal uh, that Dracula would kind of seduce, and and there was a sexualization of that. Yeah, and the the virginity and the purity being tied up with the victimization is very problematic and patriarchal. And I think that. Yes, it is wonderfully influential, but that's not always a good thing. Yeah. Um, because that is a huge horror trope. Would that have existed because of the patriarchal world? Probably, yes. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's fascinating as well that this... It was all shot on one camera, because they could only afford to shoot it on one camera, which mm-hmm. meant there was only one negative reel. Right. Um, and it was ordered to be destroyed by Stoker's uh, widow and the heirs of the estate. Um but but they'd saved a few prints, of course. Um, and so it really nearly was completely lost. Um, and it was just kind of quite lucky. I think also when it comes to silent fil- cinema, silent film, and you'll be able to kind of talk to more about this, but mm-hmm. I think the art of editing becomes a hundred times more important than film student today might necessarily realise. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially when you think the timing of the music and the creation of tension that we're yeah. talking about. None yeah. of those kind of final girl tropes would kind of 
be work if if it wasn't the way in which we played with tension yeah um, yeah and I, I mean don't forget these 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 films as well were being made with a view to being performed with a live orchestra um yeah so that's that in itself adds a different element that 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 you know the weight of music i don't think has ever been as important as it was during silent era films so so there's you know shots and editing are actually done for the benefit of music rather than the other way around um which yeah, is which yeah. is also more interesting when I, I found out that um Murnau, the director, used a metronome to control the pace of the editing. Really? So that it would never wow. lose. But then of course if you look at the film with without music or with an alternate score, which has been done many, many yeah. times over, yeah. the tension isn't lost completely in mm-hmm. the same way that if you watch a modern horror without with the sound down, it's yeah, 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 it's yeah, yeah, not yeah. scary at all. Yeah. But and I think that is down to the fact that it was edited to a metronome, so it's so rhythmic. Mm-hmm. It really does guide you through the tension and the building of that tension so yeah. so wonderfully. Um, I also just it reminded me a lot thinking about Nosferatu of when you and I went to see uh, the Cabinet of Dr Caligari live yes, scored by the Tiger Lilies by well, Martin, Martin Jakes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which was just an extraordinary experience. Um, uh, and also. Um, uh, I, I went to see a, um, a couple of silent films by Buster Keaton uh, mm. rescored uh, live recently at Vault Festival. If you get the opportunity to do anything like that, especially yeah. if you're a film fan, I'd really recommend it. It's a really joyful mixture of of, of live art, which is my first love and, and music, but with also some wonderful cinema. It's a celebration yeah. of some uh, kind of yeah genre bending uh, filmmakers. The last time I saw Nosferatu was uh, would have been about three three years ago, four years ago, um, when I uh, uh, took a uh, show to um, a music festival called Nostock in Herefordshire. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and um, the great thing about taking theatrical shows to music festivals is that you have one hour of performance and then you just get to be at music festival then for you get, get to be there. three, four days for free. So it was, fa- it was fab. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, wandering around uh, about three o'clock in the morning and discovered right in the corner of this festival, this kind of rickety old cinema tent um, and uh, and walked in and they were playing and I sat and watched the whole of Nosferatu about three o'clock in the morning. Which oh, fab. wonderful. Fabulous bit of uh, yeah, bit of downtime on the evening. But it was lovely. <laughs> um, cool. So, my final choice uh, is probably I would say it's my favourite of the five that I've chosen, uh, which might surprise you as I uh, keep talking. Uh, you know, well, uh, as you have mentioned before, and I, I. Uh, do attest to that I'm somewhat of a cinema aficionado and I've talked about independent Iranian films and I've talked about independent American <laughs> films in this but but you know if I'm being honest this is probably my favourite film out of the five this is one of my favourite films ever I absolutely love it and it is the 1996 film From Dusk Till Dawn <laughs> I adore this film uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez written by Quentin Tarantino um, and um it's uh, about two brothers played by George Clooney and Tarantino uh, who are like serial killers on the run uh, and they um, end up taking hostage a preacher played by Harvey Keitel and his daughter played by Juliette Lewis. And for about half the film, you just follow this and you think it's a kind of typical crime 
kind of comedy drama that Tarantino and Rodriguez the type of thing you'd expect from those two and they end up in this bar on the Mexican border and then suddenly and it is literally about 45 minutes into the film (laughs) the sun goes down and everyone becomes vampires and you have absolutely (laughs) no idea you've been in a vampire film the whole time (laughs) and I just love it because it completely changes genre halfway through the film and totally subverts your expectations Um, and and it is, it's, of course, it's a great script. It's Tarantino. Um, uh, and um, actually, it was his first ever paid writing gig. Was it really? Now, bear in mind, this is after he'd won an Oscar for Pulp Fiction. Um, but, of what? course, because those were his films that he was putting on. He didn't pay himself to write them. So he, just, okay. he wrote them and then... But, but, yeah, this was actually a writing commission. Um, do you know how much he was paid to write this film? Um, $3,000. Fifteen hundred dollars. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So I, yeah, I thought I'd aim at the bottom end, and I still didn't yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah, half of what your your guess was. Um, uh, and originally he was going to uh, direct it. The, the studio wanted him to direct it, but actually he said he wanted to focus on playing the character more yeah. um, than uh, a bit having to be behind the camera. And it does show because I think this is by a mile Tarantino's best acting he's ever done. Um, yeah, I mean, I like him in, you know, his cameo in Pulp Fiction and, yeah. you know, the way he turns up in a lot of his movies. But I hated him in The Hateful Eight. Uh, yeah, uh, Django Unchained as well was... Uh, Django Unchained. Is The Hateful Eight the one we plays the Australian? No, that's Django. That's Django. No, yeah. that's the one I really hate him in. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I don't know why he's yeah. Australian in it at all. Um, yeah, nonsense. Um, but uh, he... <laughs> Uh, in this, I think is is brilliant and shows a range that you don't really ever get to see much. Uh, anything else that Tarantino acts in, um, and it's certainly I think it must be the largest amount in terms of screen time because um, yeah. he's in it near, near the whole film. He's one of the lead actors, um, and it was also the first thing George Clooney did post ER. Um, uh, was and it? Apparently, well, of course, ninety six. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, that was a very deliberate choice by Tarantino because he said he liked the idea of someone who had previously been known uh, saving people in the ER was sending people to the ER. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he liked that. And obviously Clooney loved the idea of, of you know, completely going against type because, you know, Clooney's never really wanted to be typecast in, in, in his career and he didn't want to just keep playing kind of dashing heroes, which is, of course, what he was in, in ER for years. Yeah. So so really jumped at playing this really nasty piece of work. Um, but again... Again, like Tarantino, like Rodriguez do, you know, they really play with ethical boundaries because you're forced then to kind of be rooting for these two serial killer brothers because they're going up against a whole load of vampires. So now you're like, well, these seem like the lesser of two evils in this. But isn't that another example of what vampires allow you to do? Mm -hmm. uh, You know, Zombocalypse, not quite so much. It's a similar situation that you said with Walking Dead, but zombies don't have personalities, thoughts and feelings, whereas vampires can. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it allows you to to blend those those uh, moral boundaries. I yeah. think, yeah, because you've got evil monsters who actually have sophisticated thoughts, feelings, identities. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> what a great idea. And 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 yeah, and I just love it all the way through. It's you've got these people playing. I mean, Harvey Keitel, who you know, m- menacing leader of uh, these violent gangsters in Reservoir Dogs, yeah. turns up as this really meek, mild priest. To the point of there's this, you know, bit where where Clooney says, gets, you know, says, are you a man or are you a mean MFing servant of God? Yeah. And he's like, and he go, and he and he says, what are you? He says, what are you? And he goes, I'm a mean 
seven. Like he still can't even can't say even it. Say like it, he's yeah. g'd himself up, but he can't sweat still. And like <laughs> there's this, yeah. Uh, and he plays a really, really nice, uh, uh, mild mannered performance. Um, uh, and you've got people like Tom Savini who's in it, who's like a special effects and horror makeup legend, and he's acting in it um, as a character that has had his genitalia replaced by a gun. Um, right. It's. I mean, it's, okay. yeah. It's it's typical <laughs> Rodriguez and Tarantino. It really is. Although, I um, wouldn't you say that's more Rodriguez? That yeah. Because and also, I think that Rodriguez has like a faster. Like one of the reasons why I would say Tarantino's fun but arty. Rodriguez yeah. is is actually very artful. Yeah. In terms of the way it's done, but it it feels more fun and quick and jump cutty. Absolutely. Um. Absolutely. Uh. And and again mentioned him earlier on but but uh uh, uh john carpenter is, i mean they've always said how much john carpenter's influenced them but uh but yeah certainly in this film as well massive nods to carpenter um these are you know films like the thing and they live and the first mm. halloween and things like that um uh he's also done a vampire film actually but, uh, uh vampires yeah is it called vampires yeah, yeah. 98 i believe um uh and so yeah very very kind of old school very fun and tongue-in-cheek and and just one of the best it has to be one of the best surprises in film history and it's one of those things that you kind of get upset and nostalgic for now because because of social media you couldn't have that you know in the same way with you know you couldn't release the sixth sense now yeah um so it's really lovely to because well, everyone would know the ending anyway <laughs> exactly so every you know and and everyone would have gone in if that film was released today you'd have already heard that oh yeah. it's a vampire film so it's that you've also got to remember when that film came out in 96 your people would be sitting in cinemas just going wait what what is happening why are vampires um yeah which is just yeah it's so cheeky and subversive and uh yeah one of the things i really love um interesting little fact about it is that the vampires have green blood okay and the reason for this is because Rodriguez knew there's so much blood in the film that if it had been red, it would have got an NC-17 rating, which would have killed it when um, it came out. So right. to get the R rating, he changed the colour of the blood to green. That's a brilliant idea. And just made it the mythos of the film that vampires have green blood. Well, if we've, you know, if we've learned anything from Spinal Tap, it's that actually your blood is green on the inside. It's just the skin that makes it look red. Well, it's well, you're not you're not far wrong, aren't you? Because it is well, blood's blue, isn't it? The vein that's where you see your veins. Blood is blue in the inside of your body, and it's when it is mixed with oxygen that it turns red. So that's why when you cut yourself, right. blood's red on the outside. So yeah, you can you can play with the color of blood. Play with the idea of that. Um, that's fantastic yeah. and a great fun one to uh, end with as well. Absolutely. Um, it would be wrong if, uh, or remiss of us not to do some honourable mentions. Absolutely. I'm sure those, of, you know, you, you probably have been listening and thinking of all your other vampire films that you go, how oh, could you have missed that? Um, first of all, I just wanted to, uh, on the on the music front, again, you mentioned it earlier, Bauhaus with Bella Lugosi's Dead. Yeah. Um, again, Bauhaus were kind of a, a band that you, I mean, they're very, obviously very, Art rock. I mean, they're named after a an art, a German art movement. Yeah, and you, there are a lot. There's lots of craft work kind of influences in what they're doing. So this is quite goth rock in the sense that it's it's scary and 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 weird. But also, I just think it gives you such a huge idea of how big Bella Lugosi's 
portrayal of Dracula was that you can do a song that's that's come under the genre of goth rock purely because it mentions Bella Lugosi yeah. um, rather than necessarily anything else. Very weird song, good fun. Um, also, Interview with a Vampire, you mentioned yeah. earlier, Anne Rice. Um, I, I think that's something you a lot of people will remember. 94, uh, based on the 76 novel, uh, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. How could you, you know, not enjoy that? It it did get pretty good, you know, reviews. Stephen Ray, Antonio Banderas, Christian Slater, uh, Kirsten Dunst. A huge movie. Yeah. Um, in terms of stars. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and good fun. But also interesting when you think about the fact that you were talking about how one of the very clever things about Stoker was actually having it in diary form and entry form. Yeah. And I think there is a, even a nod in this 94 movie yeah. to that idea of what, of, of, of taking the perspective of a diary entry or an interview, but actually let's interview the vampire. Yeah. Um, quite cool. Um, my other weird uh, mention was a kid's show that came out in 99. So I was nine years old. Mona the Vampire. Mona the Vampire. <laughs> which is a, was a really successful, long-running uh, TV show um, produced in Canada, but also co-produced with an animation um, a studio in, uh, uh, I think it's in China. Um, and and, and, and it, I think it just had this huge acclaim. It was recorded in all sorts of different languages. It was just about a kid who... Uh, called Mona, who was in a kind of an American high school. Um, but whenever she kind of got bored, she'd go off into a very vivid imagination. And always in her imagination, she was a vampire. Now, all the adults kind of knew that she wasn't. Mm -hmm. But you, as the viewer, would go into solving a mystery or dealing with some, uh, something that had happened at school. Someone's lost their pencil or something, I don't know. And they'll be trying to solve it, but with all the vampire tropes in there. And so it was yeah. a really fun way of just, again, going, okay, well, well, it's not really strictly a vampire thing, but it has all the vampiric tropes in there. And she's got a dog that's a sidekick she straps wings to every time. Um, and her best friend, uh, Charlie, ends up kind of having superpowers as well. And a ray gun. Um, and it's just a very silly thing. It also, actually, the reason I, I think about it the most is because it does have such an amazing theme tune written by Judith Henderson, who was responsible for the Arthur theme as well. Great. So like two massive bangers. Great. And also, something that you mentioned earlier, it's Are You Afraid of the Dark? She also wrote that. Fantastic. So, Judith Henderson, what a, what a star. So, yeah, worth a little honourable mention there. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've got a few. Um, I want to talk a bit about comedy and vampires, because we've we've not really done that much, although I guess From Dust Till Dawn is, is quite funny in places. Um, oh, that's very funny the whole way through. It's a Tarantino script, isn't it? But... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think um, uh, what we do in the shadows, both the original film and the subsequent TV show, is just great. I just love the idea of a sitcom about four vampires who are flatmates, but are all like, obviously from different eras because of the old idea of vampires not be of being immortal. And it's it's mockumentary. It's style, mockumentary it? style, yeah. Um, and yeah, and and the fact that they have this rivalry with these werewolves, uh, werewolves, but um, all werewolves. Yeah. If you how let us right uh, actually, this is a long discussion we have. Mm. So 
if you do get in touch, please let us know whether you say werewolves or werewolves. Mm. Um, we'll start the debate. I mean, I think it's werewolf because uh, one of my favourite jokes in any film is in Young Frankenstein, where they're driving <laughs> Brooks, through the though. where they're yeah where they're driving through the forest and there's a howl, and he says uh, werewolf. He goes werewolf. <laughs> Um, uh, and also, like, I mean, I mean, it's probably going to be awful now, but as a kid, I remember loving the film uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It with Leslie Nielsen, which was like a spoof Dracula yeah. film. Um, you've also got uh, The Fearless Vampire Hunters, which was, um, or, or Fearless Vampire Killers, I should say, which was uh, uh, Roman Polanski, um, a film we talked, oh, maybe it's Vampire Hunters. Uh, but we yeah we talked about it a bit because it related to the when we did our secret 60s uh yeah that was the last film she'd been working on that's when she got into all the occult stuff her being sharon tate um uh but yeah and, and a couple of other really really interesting films um uh that aren't maybe talked about a lot but i would really suggest going and seeking out because they're really good uh one is jim jarmusch's uh only lovers left alive with tilda swinton and tom hiddleston which is uh, about these kind of yeah uh, actually quite a good companion piece to the hunger it's this kind of love story about these two aging vampires who've been together for centuries uh and then um this sort of younger sister vampire of of Tilda Swinton turns up and kind of disrupts their life but it's it's a lot of just long conversations because if anyone who's seen a Jim Jarmusch film that's what he does um <laughs> and uh uh it, it but it's brilliant brilliantly shot great performances by Hiddleston and Swinton um and it's really cool. It's a really, really cool vampire film. Um, and the other one is a film called Byzantium, um, uh, 2012, directed by Neil Jordan, uh, with Gemma Arterton and Saoirse Ronan playing two, uh, playing a, a young mother and daughter who are both vampires. Um, and they m- move into this hotel. Um, Johnny Lee Miller's in it as well. Um, and they're, they're, they're being hunted by other vampires and they're hiding out from them and most of it takes place in this hotel and it's quite noirish. Um, hmm. Again, um, uh, Neil Jordan um, uh, did The Crying Game, which he's best known for. Yeah, um, I know that. But yeah, yeah uh, a Company of Wolves as well, which is a great werewolf one he did. Um, and Interview with a Vampire, actually, was Neil Jordan. Oh, so, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's got, he's got, he's form. got form. He's got form, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, Byzantium, again, yeah, kind of great film. Um uh, yeah, and I think that's yeah. I mean, there is so much stuff. There's out there. so much stuff. We have managed to go the whole thing without barely mentioning the Twilight Saga, which I'm happy about. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people love it. But... A lot of people love it. I've I've never indulged myself, so I shouldn't really talk about it in a negative way because I don't know. But, yeah, um, it just hasn't appealed to me. But um, yeah, it, it, there there is so 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 much um, vampire stuff, which is kind of mad when you think uh, that before you know certainly a couple hundred years ago no one had really heard of it and it was yeah. never even a, a trope but it's it's 1897 to now so much has been made and done yeah um and yeah i, I think it's a, a a great a great um idea it's a great tool for telling lots of different types of stories and different types of uh filmmaking and different types of music writing absolutely um, and you wonder don't you i mean you can't imagine stoker could have known quite how far this character would, no. would go or this idea would go you know um it's quite something it's quite something quite a legacy yeah for a man who knew an awful lot about victorian property law <laughs> 
and wrote about it at length. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, guys, let us know. Let us know what your favorite vampire uh, films, TV shows, books, yeah, uh, uh, comic book songs, anything like that. If there's a vampire opera, let us know. Yeah, that'd be yeah. weird, wouldn't it? Um, there is a Dracula opera. Frank Wildhorn, who did Jekyll and Hyde, uh, he did a Dracula opera. Not an opera, a musical. It's a, a musical. musical. Yeah, but uh, sung free. But it's yeah, it's not good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, cool. So yeah, do 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 get in touch uh, with any vampire recommendations for us because yeah, be interested to to know. Um, that's kind of it from us. Yeah, uh, if you do want to get in touch, uh, all the usual ways. All the usual ways. Yeah. Um. Uh. You can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter at Macabre Podcaster. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, uh, fb.me forward slash Podcaster Macabre. You can get in touch with us via email, podcastmacabre at gmail.com. And of course, you can uh, listen to this podcast uh, and you can like, share, and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and all those places you can get your podcasts. Um, just a reminder that we are uh, up, up on Sunday. That is our last episode of Jonathan Creek. Dun, 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 dun. That is uh, the last one of Jonathan Creek. We might do a little retrospective um, yes. in, so, in a little bit. So, yeah, so we are, we are finishing with our last episode of Jonathan Creek uh, on Sunday. Then we are going to have a week off, so there won't be and any requests uh next thursday um and there won't be a podcast of macabre on the sunday but we will be back the following week with uh our next uh any requests uh which is looking at the movies of stephen king uh, and frank darabont the collaboration great so collaboration the shawshank redemption the green mile and the mist so we'll be looking at those three films in our next any requests and uh, as callum said we will then do a jonathan creek retrospective and from that point onwards, we will be moving up to two Any Request podcasts a week to try and uh, catch, catch up. up. Yeah. Be great. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, all that good stuff to look forward to. Uh, as always, if you want to be a patron yourself, as I mentioned right at the beginning, the link is in the description. If you can afford it, chuck us £5 and we will do a podcast like this on absolutely anything you want. Um, so, yeah, in the meantime, I've been David Chopman. And I've been Callum Hughes. And this has been Any Requests. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. Bella Lugos is dead. Undead, undead, undead. Undead, undead.